Welcome to the Fellowship Regional Church Podcast. I like the Gospels for different reasons. I like the Gospels because each writer has his own take. It's kind of like if you're standing out on a corner and a car wreck happens and, it's, and, and you saw everything, somebody's going to say, well, I know whose fault it was. It was that guy who was texting and driving. Somebody else is going to say, are you serious? That lady was doing her eyeliner in the mirror, like through the intersection. You know, somebody else is going to say, you know, well, here's the biggest problem. Those lights don't stay green long enough. That would be my story. That would be, they need to stay green longer. There's always a different take depending on what angle you're seeing things from. The book of John is no different. We get to John chapter 2. And before we even finish chapter 1, and before we even get to chapter 2, there's already things that we begin to notice about John's gospel. For instance, John, the gospel writer, has a very strange relationship with time and space. John says stuff like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it's this thing, like, like he gets to step outside of time and space and just narrate it from any direction that he wants to, and he can talk about it however he would like. It's such an interesting deal. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He will jump from present tense to past tense to future tense. He goes all over the place. And you're thinking, he's not very good at this writing thing. Except it's, his deal is he's got a completely different understanding about who Jesus is than we do. He sees Jesus on the outside functioning outside of time and space. And so this stylistic form where John makes these editorial insertions continues throughout the book. And we see a ton of them in the very first chapter. Let me give you an example. John chapter 1, verse 29, talking about John the Baptist. Listen to what John the Baptist says about Jesus, according to John. John 1, 29 and 30. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We can get that, right? That's good. But then listen. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Come again? This is the... Remember when I was saying how he was first before me, then after me, and then he kind of he surpassed me because he came before me? Oh, no. I remember that, but I remember being as confused now as I was then at whatever it is you're talking about. Everybody has this understanding of Jesus functioning outside of this. Like John writes in this way. He also does stuff to where he will drop in these little hints that should trigger your thoughts and make you think of different things. Let me give you another example. In John 1, 43 through 48, there's this conversation to where Jesus meets Philip. And he says, come follow me. And Philip says, 
okay, but I got to go get my friend Nathaniel. He's going to love this. We've been talking about the Messiah coming for a long, long time. So he goes and he finds Nathaniel and he says, Nathaniel, you've got to come. I, we found the Messiah. And he says, really? And he goes, yes, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of, of uh, Mary and Joseph. And, and Nathaniel says, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Pickway? Can anything good come out of Caney? Tyro? La Harp? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And upon seeing, uh, seeing Nathaniel, Jesus says, Now there's a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. And Nathaniel, almost egotistically it sounds, says, How do you know me? You know? That's me. How do you know me? And then Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip ever called you. And Nathaniel's like, you got me. You're him. You're him. It's this deal like Jesus functions sometimes to the limitations we have. And then sometimes it's like he's given this extra deal. And John notices that. And he records that. Remember I said he drops in these little phrases. Check this one out. John chapter 2, very first phrase. On the third day. Come on. Come on. If you're a Christian and you've been a Christian for any amount of time, when somebody says, and on the third day, those words are pregnant with revelatory sentiment. They are just, it's this sense of expectation. And on the third day, third day? That's a big deal for us. We like the whole three-day thing. Three-day thing, that's good news for us. And John just takes these little things and drops them in, and then he starts his story. You don't start a story with the resurrection. Three words. The third day. You're going to start with that? Yeah, I'm starting with that. Where are we going? Just to a wedding. We're just going to a wedding. I don't know how many weddings you've been a part of, but there is a language that happens at weddings that's pretty interesting. Specifically, it's really not, I mean, a language in as much as it's just a certain phrase that everybody begins to say. Here it is. They only say it to one person. Here's the phrase. It's your day. Everybody says this to the bride all day long. I've had the joy <laughs> of being a part of a lot of weddings. And... One of the things that I've noticed about being a part of weddings is if the bride wants it, she gets it. Like down to, I've even, <laughs> I've even had situations where it was like, do you think you could do something about the floor before Saturday? Me personally? Like I'm about to violate the number one rule in what things you don't say to the bride. No. Could you do something? And I'm like, I'm halfway into saying yes. And I'm like, oh, but, I mean, I, I could. I, I, that's impossible. There's no way. There's no way. I'm not going to do that. There's no way I'm doing that. No, I can't do it. Okay, we'll go somewhere else. So long. Wow. It's your day. You don't tell the bride no. No one tells the bride no. It's her day. She could take six hours to do her makeup if she wants to. It's her day. And John drops us right into the middle of a wedding. And on the third day, 
It's also interesting because you don't really know what the third day part is. The third day from when? Like third day of the week? No, it's not the third day of the week. They did weddings on like Thursdays. It's not the third day of the week. The third day of when? Like the third day since these stories started? Well, that doesn't work either because if you back up, it goes the next day, the next day, the next day, four days, then the next day. The third day? No, that's the fifth day or fourth day. It's not the third day. I don't know what the third part of this means. The third day. Third day from when? I don't know. It just seemed like a good introduction. Plus, it got your wheels turning. Now you're thinking about Jesus. Okay. Okay. The third day. We get to this wedding. Jesus is invited. His mother is invited. They show up to this wedding. John doesn't tell us anything about who it is. Is this a relative? Doesn't matter. Is it like one of Jesus' brothers or sisters? We don't know. Some relation to Mary? Probably. What's the connection? What's the bride's name? Who's the groom? We don't get any of that information. On the third day, Jesus went to a wedding. Well, tell me more about the wedding. It's kind of an interesting deal. Jewish weddings last like eight days. If you ever have a wedding that lasts eight days, don't call me to do it. I won't do it. <laughs> no, is the answer now. These things last eight days days. Imagine the number of, the amount of provision you have to have, even for a small wedding, to provide for people for eight days. Eastern hospitality, it's got a thing about it. Like, it's not just a scar on your name if you can't provide for your guests. You can actually, in first, in first century Palestine, be taken to court for not providing for the people who show up. But then we think to why would Jesus be at this day? You know, you didn't have to have a rabbi or a priest present at a wedding. So why is Jesus there? John doesn't tell us. But history does. And this, my friends, is weird. They would call in the local rabbi, and they would bring him and his disciples in. And the point was for entertainment for the wedding. Now listen, a lot of you have had some graduation parties and some weddings. None of you have ever called and said, hey, Jared, want to come and do a bit beforehand? Do a little comedy bit beforehand, Jared? I mean, I wish you would call me and ask me to do that. I'll panic, and I'll probably say no. But you don't call a rabbi, call a rabbi in for that? Here's what's crazy. History tells us that rabbis would show up to these weddings. They would sing and dance. Their disciples would put on these strange skits. They would laugh and joke. They were the entertainment for the party. One rabbi, as I was reading this last week, crossed the line. He hoisted the bride up on his shoulder, kind of danced around the room. All the other rabbis heard about it and were like, listen, we'll juggle bowling pins and stuff, but you crossed the line, pal. Like, that's, like, this is real. Like, one juggled, one sang, one danced. What was Jesus' job at this thing? Is it weird you have to think about that? Does me? Liturgical dancing? Is that what Jesus was doing here? Well, I don't think so. Strange though, isn't it? That's what the rabbis would do there. They're sitting there, they're enjoying this. Mary, she's back in the kitchen. And so she comes out. She weaves her way all the way through the crowd. She gets all the way up to Jesus who's sitting over here. And she whispers something in his ear. 
Jesus is a good son. He stands up, follows his mom out to the hallway of the Cana Community Center, I assume. The 12 disciples, they see their rabbi get up and they're like little mice, just hop up. All oh, just this line. Off they go, out hovering behind Jesus. Don't want to miss one single word that the master says. Mary pulls him aside and she says, They ran out of wine. <laughs> to which Jesus says, this is literally what he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? It is not yet my hour. So this got me thinking, and you know I get carried away sometimes, and so don't take this as gospel. But in my mind, I, wonder, I just wonder this, I'm just curious. Mary seems to be pretty involved with this wedding. When I'm involved in weddings, there's a couple of people who are very involved along with the bride and the groom. You know who they are? Typically the mother and the mother-in-law. Those are very involved people in the wedding. Typically involved so much the bride ends up crying at some point during the whole situation. They're involved, involved. It's almost as if they want to vicariously live this wonderful, beautiful day through their daughter or through their daughter-in-law and this just kind of happens and this got me thinking about Mary and if Mary looks at Jesus and she says you know they're out of wine and that doesn't look good on the family Jesus is like woman what has this got to do with me and I'm wondering if Mary doesn't think to herself what's it got to do with you you know a lot of girls got weddings Some girls, they met somebody nice, they dated, they got married, then they had babies. I, on the other hand, was not given such an opportunity, <laughs> if you remember correctly, <coughs> and that had more to do with you than it did with me. Was this part of it? Was this Mary's thing? I'm like, I don't know if you remember, but... I didn't get one of these, Jesus. That was your fault. Was there some of that in there? I don't know that. I'm just curious. It puts my mind in this place of, she didn't get a wedding. Maybe she's, she seems awfully invested in this one. Is this part of it? I believe she was a wonderful woman. Scripture tells us that she was. She was a very holy woman. Jesus' answer sounds cold. Woman, what does this have to do with me? It's not. It's really not. The, wo the woman part is a term of endearment. It's my lady. Mom, what has this got to do with us? It seems like they're talking about something else, something more mystical. Not like just like, not my problem, but more like, Mom, don't, don't push. This isn't the time. And then he tells her, this isn't the hour. This isn't my hour. What is he talking about? Like it's, I ain't got time for this. No. I'm wondering if maybe Mary's got this thing like the divine secret, Jesus, you know. This is the perfect break in the wedding for you to step into the community of people here and for you to do something magical 
and show everybody and tell everybody who it is that you are. Pull the curtains back, Jesus, and tell everybody who it is that you are. And Jesus says, it's not that time. You're my earthly mother, but my heavenly father is telling me this is not the time. This is not the time. And Mary's response is perfect. She turns to some busboy carrying a load of plates by and empty glasses. He's just cruising down the hallway. She grabs him up. He almost dumps them all into the floor. And then she looks at him and she goes, you, do whatever he says. <laughs> and jets out the deal. You, do whatever he says. And she just disappears. Jesus is left with no other option but... And the 12 disciples are like, man, his mom is really... A <laughs> she's nice. She's sweet. She's nice. She's nice. Jesus turns to one of the servants and he says, look, see this, these stone jars over here? There's these six stone jars. Scripture tells us they hold 20 to 30 gallons of water. Jesus said, fill them to the brim, all the way to the brim. They fill them to the brim. 20, 30 gallons apiece, six of them. And he says, now scoop some of the water out and take it to the head waiter, the guy that's the MC, the guy that's running the hype man. He's the, the guy, the guy, you know, the one with the microphone. Take this to him. Let him taste it. So the servant scoops the water. Can you imagine how awkward this would be? Scoops the water out. So take the water to the guy. He's going to fire me when I show up with the water to give, take the water. Okay. And tell him it's wine. Just have him taste it. Sweet. He, you know water doesn't taste right. It doesn't. You, just have him. Sweet. This is really good. Um, Jesus? Do you know him? His mom? Anyway. Taste that? And the guy drinks it. And it says that he tastes it. And his immediately beelines himself to the, to the groom. Excuse me, sir, can I, can I? The groom comes over, he's like, we're getting ready to do the, we're getting ready to do the first dance. He's like, yeah, I just, just for a second. What is it? Pulls him over and he's like, uh, I've been a part of a lot of weddings. I've set up a lot of festivals. And one of the things that I've noticed is what you do is you bring out the, the, you know, like the good wine in the beginning. And as the night goes on, you tend to water it down, make it go a little longer, maybe even pull in the box wine, you know? Maybe get the cheaper stuff, bring it in. Um, uh, the gas station type, you know? You, you bring that in, and then you, then you serve that. You know why? Because people are good and lathered up, and then they don't notice that it's bad. And that's how you typically do it. But you... Where did you get these, where did you get this wine that we have right now? Because you have saved the very best of your wine until now. And it's just this puzzling conversation. And you can imagine the groom, the look on the groom's face, and he's like, what? What are you, what? And it's just over. And then John writes this. And the disciples and only a couple of servants saw this thing happen and they put their trust in him. They believed in him then. When they saw this, then they believed in him. There's some things about the Gospel of John that comfort me. I want to point out a few of them, specifically from this story. 
The first one is this that I want to point out. I find great comfort in John's gospel writing for the simple reason that God does not function within the, the same limitations and the, and the constraints that we function in. He is outside of our time and space continuum. He is outside of this thing that we live in, that we are bound by. He is outside of that. And that brings me great joy, and I'll tell you why. Because anytime we get ourselves in a place to where the world has kind of mashed us down and our circumstances in the now begin to tighten down on us and we feel pressure, something powerful happens. We move into this place to where we are now inside of our problem and now we move into God's presence, which God's presence is outside of time and space. So we can step out of our problem and into this place to where God is. The presence of God means we are outside of our circumstances. See, this changed the way I thought about prayer. Prayer is not me praying for you and hoping you make it through. Prayer is me taking you and your situation, pulling you out of it, handing it to God inside of his realm, outside of time and space. And then he says, it's already done and it's already over. Dear God, please heal my, my friend. Please heal my daughter. Please heal my son. And God says, okay, it's done. And you turn and you look at him and you go, is it done? It doesn't look done. God, please rescue me from this situation. And God says, okay, it's done. Is it done? It doesn't feel done. It's done there. It's already done there. He's traveled it with us. Inside the presence of God means we are outside of the time constraints and all of the circumstances and the pain and the sin that we are in now. In His presence, it's different. I find great comfort in that. I'll tell you what else I find great comfort in. That although He is, He voluntarily functions inside of our world and He doesn't have to, but because he does, that encourages me. Why would they have to go through this problem? Do you think it was news to Jesus that they were out of wine? I imagine he knew. Jesus, they're out of wine. Yeah, I know. You know? Yeah, I know. All right. He doesn't say he knows, but you just assume he knows. He lets them struggle. Why didn't he just fix it? Did he have to do it? Did it take the situation? Did it take the scenario? Did it require his mother? Did it require a busboy and a servant and somebody to haul it to the MC and the disciples to watch on? Did it involve everybody? Couldn't he have just known, like, there's not enough wine. You know what? I'm just going to fill it up from the bottom up while I sit at my table. Couldn't he have done that? Of course he could. But you know what I found out about Jesus that I do and do not like? It's his slow walk with me through the pain that gives me more trust. I beg, Jesus, rescue me quickly, right? I'm in the pain, rescue me quickly. And he says, how about I just walk with you through it? Okay, could you walk faster? That'd be good. I'd appreciate that. Because it's kind of hard. And I'm just trudging and I got mud in my boots. And it's too deep. And it's weighing me down. And he says, I'll walk with you. Can you make it stop? Oh, we don't want to make it stop. This is good for us. Good for you, for me. It hurts. But I find joy in that, that Jesus goes through this thing. Woman, what's this got to do with me? 
It is not yet my hour. I can't pull back the curtain on that right now. I can't just step into this right now. I got little ones here that I'm trying to teach. They're going to take the church on to the next place. I got to teach them. I can't just give it to them for free. They got to be strong on the inside. Woman, this is not the hour. If I pull back the curtain now, it's not going to work. We got to go through this. We got to build calluses. How many times has the Lord done that with me? Where I'm begging, can you make this thing go faster? No, I can't make it go faster. Can you pull me up quicker? No, what for? We're together. Yeah, everywhere I go with you is hard. Does it have to be hard all the time? And that's where it goes. Third thing that I find very comforting about this is John's choice of words. John's choice of words are this. He takes the wine, the servant takes the the water, the wine, and he hauls it to the MC, and it says that when the master, the head waiter, drank it, he doesn't use the word drink. He uses the word experienced. (laughs) That's a strange one, isn't it? How many of you are going to go straight home and experience lunch? Some of you are like, I experience every meal at my house. It's unfortunate. That's why I eat fast food all the time. <laughs> he uses the word experience. And when he experienced the wine, really? He also says this. You have saved the good wine for now. The word is good in our, in our Bibles. In the Hebrew, it's beautiful. Or, I mean, in the Greek, it's beautiful. Like God doesn't just come in and make something taste great. It looks great. It experiences great. It experiences beautifully. See, that's the way God does things. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, and we were talking about how, isn't it amazing how terrible situation can show up in our life, and yet, when you're a Christian, you can look at You can look at your life and you can say, how is this turning into a good thing? I've said this before. Christians are the only weirdos who say, you know what? Rehab was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Or cancer was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Or that was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Or the abuse or my childhood. Those were the greatest things because they made me who I am. and They taught me to trust in the Lord. And you just think, what in the world? John uses these words that he didn't just drink the wine. He experienced the wine. Let me tell you something. If you don't know Jesus here today, do you know what one taste from the vats of heaven will do? One experience will do? I'll tell you. It will ruin you and restore you simultaneously. And some of you know this, don't you? It will ruin you and restore you simultaneously. And you'll find yourself at the very end of yourself and somehow full and okay. It's a terribly wonderful situation. That's That's what John writes. That's what his words are. It's this sad news about this Savior and that somehow it's hopeful. It's a message for right now that's from the past that has everything to do with the future. He writes about a Messiah who came, who was before, who's coming again. He just went around us. He was here and he went back and he's going to come again. And John writes and he uses these perfect words. 
Listen, if you don't know Jesus, let me tell you, if you experience him, it'll change your life. Yeah, well, I've tried church. Yeah, I'm not talking about church. Church is weird, all right? It is just is. It's just a weird thing. Where else during the week do you stand up and sing beside other people? Coworkers? No. Your family? Weirdos? No. No one does this. How often do... Where else do you go to where you just voluntarily sign up to get lectured about your life, come in feeling terrible, leave feeling terrible, walk away and just like, I needed that. That's weird. The church is a weird thing. You eat a chiclet, you drink some juice, somebody tells you, well, this represents this, and you kind of walk out like, okay, I don't... It's a strange, strange deal. I'm not talking about trying church. I'm talking about you getting to the place to where you say... I need to experience Jesus. See, this is part of the problem. We see heaven in black and white. And we look at it oftentimes and we go, it's kind of a boring place in thought. And you try to imagine it being a really cool place and you're like, I don't even play a harp. I don't fly. I don't want wings. That's weird, you know? I don't know what's there. Here's the deal. It's not what is there. It's who is there. That's what makes heaven heaven. It's not about the place, it's about the person. Without him, heaven isn't heaven. It's because of who he is that heaven is what it is. And when we begin to understand that, that changes us. Here's the fourth thing that really encourages me, and that's this. Jesus shows up to a wedding and fixes the wine shortage problem. That's weird, right? Nobody's screaming, hey, Jesus, my son's demon-possessed. No one's screaming, hey, my, daughter's, uh, my daughter can't walk or she's paralyzed. No one's screaming, hey, Jesus, I got leprosy. Here's what encourages me about this, is that oftentimes I think Jesus is out to fix me. That his number one goal is to fix me. Oh, geez. Really, Jared? Oh, my me. Are you serious? Like, just gonna continue to screw your life up over and over? Hey, 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 Jared, over. Hey, over. Oh, that's the way I think about him sometimes. You know what he shows here? He came to gladden hearts. You know what sometimes you need? You just need to laugh. You know? I mean, sometimes even at inappropriate times, funerals, you know? Weddings, when somebody says, you know, like, this is going to last forever, you, <laughs> you know, you hate that, but you just do. Sometimes what you need is just to laugh a little. Wine was always seen as joy. That's what wine was always seen. I mean, it was always seen as joy. And when they would talk about the vineyards, they were talking about joy. We talked about this in the Song of Solomon. Catch for us the foxes, the little foxes, that move into our vineyard and run our vineyard. And what we talked about is these early fights between husbands and wives. And if we don't get a grasp on them, we don't get the foxes out of the vineyard, there's no wine, there's no joy later. And Jesus shows up, and the first miracle that he does in Cain of Galilee is this, gladden hearts. Sometimes all I really want to do is just really full-on belly laugh. You know what I mean? 
Like, that's really what I need. I don't need anybody to explain something to me on a theological level. I need to just laugh until I cry, and then I'm better. What this shows is that Jesus isn't just about wrenches and ratchets and hammers. Moving into my life and saying, look, we need to overhaul this disaster. Sometimes what it is is him stepping in and saying, you know what, I think you need refreshed, and all this will work better. You just need refreshed. That encourages me. There's a fifth thing that I want to share with you. It's not so much encouragement as it is more of um, exhortation. You want something to put in your pocket to take home and go do? Examine Mary's words. They sum up the, the whole of the Christian life. You cannot go wrong as a Christian following Mary's words from this story. You can't do it. You do whatever he says. Do whatever he says. Because if we do whatever he says, we win. We make it. We find peace. We find joy. We find the vats of heaven. We experience Jesus. We come face to face with the reality that we are not throwaways. He came to redeem us, to make us whole. 